OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, Chris, uh, I'm super excited and so glad that we were able to connect and, and chat today. And we jump right into things. So welcome to uh, Ask an Angel, um, brought to you by OPN. And uh, we're excited to talk with, uh, with Chris Carter because, Chris, uh, I've been an avid fan and follower and working and, and uh, collaborating with you for, it feels like, at least 20 years now uh, from my Loblaws days. And uh, you've, you've done a significant amount of change, growth, and the startup world, and you continue to plow forward. And uh, I was always excited because to talk with you, because most uh, of the people that I've talked to in the startup world, they've probably known them maybe five years or whatnot. Uh, but you come in at it from a total different angle, and I've actually seen you in action in your startups and in your business, and now going through to what you have and participating with you on some of your events. So... Uh, it's exciting for me to to get to dive into a few uh, uh, of the things that you have done. But the way we like to start is perhaps you can give us a bit of a background on yourself, uh, what you've done in the past, some of the startups uh, from thin data all the way up to to where you are today and the things that you're uh, working on now. And then uh, one thing about you that nobody would know. Nobody would know. Interesting. Okay. So first off, um, the very first startup goes all the way back to 1995, and that's when I created an online sports magazine. I was a journalist, uh, journalism student, and working journalist, um, and uh, I, you know, found very quickly that the newspaper business and the magazine business was going to be a tough one to find employment in <laughs> on an active basis. That trend was was true and beginning even back then. So my my brainwave was, well, if I create my own publication then I own it and I can employ myself. And that was really the beginning of, of being an entrepreneur and having a, having a startup. I, I created that with a, a very close friend of mine and we built it and uh, it was this online sports magazine. We sold it within the first, I say two and a half years, we sold it. It became the website for the Fan 590 uh, sports radio station. From there, we kept the team. We kept some of the technical assets we had created for that. And we created a web development company. And from there, we built that up until we suddenly saw a need where our clients all started showing up, asking if we could recommend an email marketing platform. And we thought, hmm, this sounds like recurring revenue. This sounds like something that kind of prints money while we sleep versus project chasing in the web business. And uh, we uh, set out and um, with a couple of uh, turns of good fortune, uh, built what became the largest email marketing platform in Canada. And we grew that to about... 60 plus people at the time of selling it. And uh, it was acquired by a big public communications company. And then we stayed around for a couple of years and worked on transitioning it and growing it up to 114 people. And then after that uh, left to continue and look for other, other journeys and other adventures. Amazing. And then you kind of shifted into another startup and then you moved your way into Schulich. Um, what are you, what are you doing now at Schulich? How's that looking? Yeah, I'll, we'll jump into that in a second, but I just realized I forgot to tell you the one fun fact that nobody knows about me. So I'm going to have to, I tell a lot of stories. I'm very open with my life. So I'm going to have to go with one very few people know about me, which is that I've actually um, been uh, at one point in, in my life was flown to uh, Fox Sports in Los Angeles by Fox uh, for the opportunity to pitch a television show on professional wrestling. 
And I'll tell you, man, like I've been, I've pitched a lot of things in my life. I've sat at a table and asked a, a company for, uh, you know, $20 million with a straight face and, and uh, a sincere heart. But I've never been so nervous as I was pulling up to those gates at the Fox Studios and going to pitch a television show. That's now, awesome. Shulik, <laughs> on the other hand. So my time now, I'm at Shulik where I originally started out a few years back as an entrepreneur in residence and uh, then started to build uh, out the Schulich startup program as it's become today. And that itself is an interesting story because I, I, was, I decided this was my next great passion, working with young, young people, helping them on their companies and, and on their career journeys in the innovation and tech sector. And um, I, there was no startup program at the school. And so I thought this would be a cool job if I were to have it. So I worked for eight months for free, building the startup program. And my plan was that eventually the dean and the senior leaders at the school would take note of what I was doing. And, um, and then uh, they noticed and then they came down, uh, you know, I was sitting in the cafe building it with the students and some of the alumni. And uh, they came down and said, uh, hey, we'd love to talk to you about taking this to another level, another level. And then that eventually led to me becoming uh, what is now the uh, the executive director of the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the school. And we have many, many uh, programs, both in the startup space and for innovators who are looking to work with founders and venture capitalists throughout uh, the ecosystem. Brilliant. I love it. Um, and uh, we kind of fit in the same realm on the things that we do there. And it's fascinating that um, where you guys, where you had made that pivot and changed into the schooling. One thing I love the fact is that you did it for free and then you found a way to uh, obviously build in, show some value and that converted the school into believing into your direction, which is awesome. And then it became obviously more than a passion. It became a, a value add for both sides. And now you're helping a lot of startups uh, globally um, become where they want to go. And I think that's uh, a phenomenal uh, uh, growth chart. And, and one of the things that I can say that I learned from you over the years was your stories. Um, it was the, the directions. And myself, I'm a, I love telling stories, but they're usually not so much geared around me, but of course, everybody else. So I've shared your, a couple of your stories many times. Um, and what I kind of wanted to focus a little bit on our talk was more about the hustle because most of the uh, interviews we do they're really domain focused on somebody that maybe is supporting in finance legal like all these different aspects that really make up a great investor and one thing that we uh, and we've talked about sales but we've never really talked about what sales really mean and what the hustle means to grow a startup and if there's anything that i learned from you over the years was really about being strategic on how you execute on that hustle and I'm wondering if that's somewhere where we can kind of touch base on start from some of the things that you did back in the thin data days on how you opened up doors and how you got people interested in your business. Just like you said on the print side and the magazine side or being flown to Fox and ended up, you know, or you're pitching $20 million. These just weren't fluke opportunities that you really strategically found ways to make sure that you were able to execute on them. And I kind of want to dive into that because that's where I find that the excitement is where entrepreneurs can really learn something about not only what it takes to be an entrepreneur, but what you need to do to be an entrepreneur, to be successful in closed deals. Um, so maybe we can start by, um, I remember this story you told me once and you said that uh, you had heard that there was going to be a client uh, going to be dinner, uh, having dinner or a drink at this restaurant. 
and you structured it so you were sitting at the bar with um, this person and you were able to eventually build rapport and have a, just a, happen to have a conversation with them. And then that turned into a lot of great things in the future and, and becoming a client. So I, not that I want to steal your story from that, but I would, I remember it to a T because it would, to me, it was strategic and it was, how do I get an outcome that's going to benefit where I'm going? So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and then share some, some stories that kind of dive into it. And what got you interested in taking that approach to, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, a, qu a quick nod to my, my roots again in, in journalism is that the one thing that I took away, uh, or maybe two things I took away from journalism school and from working as a journalist is one, um, you know, if you want to get the story, you got to do things differently than other people. And two, you got to be fearless. So you got to be willing to walk up to people, find ways to get to people, you know, like, you know, that would never, the stories that we were taught were stories about journalists who got stories that nobody else did, found ways to get people to open up and meet people that nobody else did. So once I found myself as a entrepreneur, then I started applying a lot of those same principles and the, the, the term that I've kind of like coined for myself, I don't know if it's used by other people publicly, but I like to use the expression creative fearlessness. Um, and so it's, it's the, the kind of the art of being fearless, but not in a reckless kind of rampant, totally spontaneous way, like actually having a, a plan as to how to apply strategically and creatively with a lot of ingenuity, fearlessness in the, in, in the process. And so there've been, yeah, times when I have like, you know, found myself in positions where, you know, or put myself in positions where I can just collide with people in just that right moment or other times when um, something was unfolding and I, and I took advantage of the opportunity. So I'll give you a couple quick stories. Like um, there was one time when we were pitching like a massive client, big bank, and um, they came in for, for a pitch. Let's say it was like three o'clock in the afternoon at our office. And uh, when they came in the office, um, you know, by, uh, uh, by happenstance, we'll say for the moment, they sat down in the lobby and they sat down and they met like a client from, uh, from Thin Data. Real client, wonderful long-term client. Uh, and they uh, sat down and uh, I knew they were there, but I didn't come to the lobby immediately to pick them up and take them to the boardroom. I let them hang out with the person, the other client who was in the lobby. So the big bank, they were thinking of being a client, but this person was a client. They had a nice conversation and the person from the current client roster talked to them all about what it was like to be a client and why they enjoyed working with us and all the great things we had done for them. And uh, then as I came into the lobby, picked up the bank and took them to the boardroom, that client walked out the door and gave me a wink because we had actually orchestrated a live reference check before the pitch started. So the bank walked into the boardroom preset that these guys are cool. The clients are there and love them, right? And they thought the pitch started when I opened my mouth in the boardroom, but the pitch actually started 10, 15 minutes before sitting in the lobby with a client who had agreed to come and sit there and wait to hang out with them and tell them a story. It was a true story. It was from the heart. And obviously the client meant it because they showed up in the middle of the business afternoon to sit in the lobby and, and, and be part of the pitch. So that is that as an example, when I told that story, very few people have ever said, oh yeah, I've done that one before, or I've heard that one before. That's a pretty kind of unique way to approach it. In fact, why that client was so, who sat in the lobby and helped with the pitch was kind of like so excited by the idea and in on it was because 
when I won over that client, um, I had actually gone to a big industry conference where that client had a booth, right? And so the client um, was in the middle of an RFP with 20 companies, hadn't hired us or worked with us before. They had met with us the previous week and I'd heard that they were gonna have a booth at this trade show. So I went down to the trade show. I grabbed myself like, uh, you know, these days would be an iPad, but back then it was a clipboard and a pen and a paper. And I stood in the, uh, in the crowd just far enough away from them that they couldn't really see or hear what I was doing, but they saw and recognized that I was there. And I started interviewing people in the crowd and taking this whole survey as people were going by. And then eventually after like half a day, the guy came over from the booth who was in charge of the RFP and he was like, Hey, Chris, what are you doing here? What's going on? And I said, well, I mean, this project is really important to me. Um, you have a very tight timeline. So I figured I'd start gathering some customer intelligence immediately so we can better craft the plan. And then I said, but I'm really busy right now working for you. So uh, we'll have to talk later. And I just walked away. <laughs> and, and then he waited. He saw me there. I stayed the whole weekend interviewing people. And then at the end of the weekend, he walked over to me as he was closing up his booth. And he said, Chris, come in tomorrow morning. We'll, we'll sign the contract. So he sent away everybody else who was in the RFP. Nobody else got to bid. And we just went and negotiated the contract together and we took it over. This, the other part of why I kind of think that way and operate that way is because the very first thing I ever pitched, I lost. And when I asked the company why we lost, they said, because you didn't come in and pitch in person. And I said, well, it didn't say in the RFP we could pitch in person. And the person said, it didn't say you couldn't pitch in person. You just never asked. So that was the moment where I was like, I'm never going to get out-competed, out-hustled, have someone be more creative, wiggle around the edges of how to get an audience or how to connect with someone. Again, I didn't like losing the first time. And so after then, I started applying these kind of like different like approaches and, and creative fearlessness techniques. That's a brilliant story. I actually had hair popping up on my hands there or whatever <laughs> on my arms because that was so exciting. Um, I, I love that. And it's interesting because my mind was running a lot of things that I'm going to say that um, because of learning these stories, but, and I, I don't know if it fits around the type of individual you are. You obviously have a very competitive nature. You learn from your previous mistake to ensure that the next one was going to be success because you don't want to set yourself up to go in and fail. You're like, if I don't have an edge, why am I going in to do this? And I think a lot of startups have to realize that there has to be an edge there. Um, and it's interesting when I teach um, classes at Seneca and other places, I came up with this game. So just like you, I was driving to class one day and I was like, I got to come up with something that's fascinating, that's going to get people interested. So I thought about this and I'm like looking around at things and all I had was a stack of paper, which are my notes that I'm taking for us. But I just thought, and I handed out a piece of paper to everybody and I said, okay, you're going to get into groups of four. So everybody broke into four groups. And I said, take this piece of paper and here's the rules. This is the only rules you have. Uh, you cannot... Um, tear the paper, but you need to fold the piece of paper up and as many times as you possibly can. That's all the rules we have. Okay, done. So everybody went, I got 15 minutes. At the end of 15 minutes, the groups would all say, oh, you'd have to stand up and present. So one person presents and they tell you this, this scenario and what they did. So they have to share the results. So everybody would stand up and say, hey, I folded the piece of paper uh, 65 times. And then the next, and they would say, uh, well, how did you do it? And then you explain, oh, I folded this way and I did this. But no one asked any questions. 
and but I only gave two rules. So eventually, at the end, everybody would share. Maybe the top was a hundred, and then that person would say, uh, at the end, I would say, if I gave you guys five more minutes, do you think you could break all the records that were obtained already in this room? Everybody's like, yeah, of course, I could crush that. And I would observe everybody and I would share back some anecdotal stuff because they were all doing this. And then they would do the five minutes and they'd come back and sometimes they'd be at 300 or 400 because they learn from everybody. But very few people actually questioned what a fold was. What do you mean by fold? And so this, I did this project on and off throughout the classes and people would want to know what the winner was. So at the end of the five minutes and they did their next presentation, you would see the gap of change. And then I would bring up the thing. I'd say, hey, Louisa, I saw you looking around. I saw you going over that group shoulder. She's like, oh, no, I didn't do it. I was not doing that. And I was like, no, 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 you were. This is good. What do you mean? I said, I never told you you couldn't look at what other people were doing. You were actually observing what your competition was doing. So you're learning something from the group. And she's like, oh, man, I wanted to get up and go talk to everybody. I'm like, you should have. There wasn't a rule that said no. Um, and then they would say, one girl would say, hey, what is a fold? And then she gave me a criteria what a fold was. And she's like, well, so if that's the case, scrumple the ball up. And she's like, I win. So that was in another class. And I almost cried. I was like, oh, my God, that's so ingenious. That's brilliant. Because she thought again further outside the box. And what I love about what you designed here or the way you attack something is that we all put ourselves into a box and then we don't think anywhere outside of it because we're afraid if we try something different, we're not going to get looked at or we're going to get avoided. And what you've created is the excitement of that person gave you that contract because they saw that you were willing to spend three days of your time interviewing, even if you weren't getting any data out of it, you were so interested and compelled to win that that person had to say yes because they knew that you would have spent the next six months making the best product that they could ever use. Um, and yeah. that's just brilliant. Yeah, and I always I would say to my students, you, there's like, you know, there's ethics, there's there's ethics and values, but there is no box, right? So just like now, like I've told you, there's no rules on the on 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 this assignment or like related to how you pitch or what you do. Can can they say, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And then you'll have like the most, you know, creative people just like think about ways to to win everybody over that no one would have expected. Right. And, and like people like show up in the pitch, you have to be, as you know, you have to be very careful about how far you go and how you distract from your core messages. But people have showed up in the pitch and like had like three customers planted in the crowd, prospective customers for this like, business concept that are real potential purchasers. And then they have them stand up in the, in the student crowd one, one after another. No one recognized who they were, or what they were there for. And then they say like three sentences on why they would buy the product and then sit back down. And there's things, things like this that are, that are, that are completely different. So that kind of like, a t like, you know, kind of like hacks to, to whether it's pitching or presenting or winning business. A another example of that is how we, we applied that to very creative ways in terms of how we met people. People will often come to me, students will come to me and say, or startups will come to me and say, like, I, I really need a mentor. And I wish this, I could get the attention of this person and, and have them work with me. I'll say like, okay, well, I can tell them a quick, a quick story or two. So I'll, I'll give you one or two uh, ideas or examples of creative fearlessness there. So when we had no network and we were just trying to meet anybody who could be a, a business person of note who would want to, you know, buy the platform, 
um, and I'm going to give this credit to, to one of one of my staff, um, having seen these different ways that we thought and worked, one of the staff then came up with an idea and said, like, her name was uh, Sandy Wong, and she was an account manager. And she came up, she said, I have this idea. If we want to meet rich and powerful people uh, who are business leaders, why don't we start volunteering at charity fundraisers all over Toronto? And when we go to the charity fundraisers, we'll take jobs that will allow us to be in close interaction with the senior executives and entrepreneurs, and then we'll introduce ourselves. And I was like, it sounds crazy. I love it. Let's go do it. So the first one we went to was the Toronto Symphony Orchestra Ball. And she signed us up to walk VIPs down the red carpet. And we went there that night and we all had kind of targets and goals as to who we wanted to meet. And some of us met them and some of us didn't. And she met Honest Ed Mervish. And she walked him down the red carpet. And of course, we're like, you're, you're young, ambitious young people. And these successful people say, oh, are you in school? What are you up to? She said, I work for this company. This is what we do. And by the way, if you ever want to talk to us, and her pitch was, um, if you work with us within a couple of years, we'll eliminate all your advertising money you have to pay in the newspapers. That was it. Honestly, didn't understand email. He didn't understand the internet, I don't think but he understood the possibility of making the newspaper bill go away, <laughs> right? Yep. And they, they became our biggest client for the first three years, right? But that was by going and volunteering like that. Another time, one of uh, our team members uh, who you um, would probably remember, Wayne Kerrigan, came back and he was, out, yeah, he was out about and Wayne was like meeting, uh, he, was, he was at an event and he came back, he said, hey, Chris, there's this guy I just saw speak. He's the smartest person I've ever heard in my life you know, talk about business and strategy. We need him as a mentor. And, uh, but he's going to be really hard to get to. Everyone's going to want time with him, but I've, he's working on a big charity project right now during the SARS recovery uh, to get tourism to come back and business travel to come back to Toronto after SARS, um, after that respiratory illness kind of like shut down the city for a while. So, and Wayne said like, I think we should work and volunteer on his charity and donate our technology to the cause. And so that's what we did. And it took six months or seven months of, of showing up and having him see the value of what we were contributing. But after that, I asked him one day, uh, after a charity meeting, organizing meeting that we went to, I asked him if I could have, you know, 15 minutes of his time to talk to him about um, raising money and how to make that happen. And this is back, you know, you know, to, to date myself for a moment, this is pre accelerators and all of the incubators and the stuff is not around at all. So raising money, not as, not as, not that it's ever easy, but really not as easy uh, as it, as it is comparatively speaking to today. So he said, yeah, come with me for a minute. He's, yeah, I thought we were going to go to his office and sit down and maybe get 15 minutes and he give me some brilliant pieces of advice in 15 minutes. Instead he opens up his calendar and he goes, um, okay. Uh, four weeks from now, Saturday, um, October the 18th, um, you come to my house, here's the address. You got five hours, we'll go through the whole business together, and we'll map everything out. Now, this guy was David Pico, who was the head of the Boston Consulting Group in Canada. I sat for what turned into seven hours at the kitchen table of the head of the Boston Consulting Group to map out what was the trajectory of where the company was going. He even, sitting at his kitchen table, he even named the acquirer of the company. And it came true in a sense that it was the company he named, it was their largest publicly funded competitor that eventually bought the company. Like every, and the biggest decisions we made, three biggest decisions we made were based on that conversation at the kitchen table. 
but meeting him, if I just said like, Hey, can you hang out with me? Hey, can you help me? I never would have got through. But again, just a different way of looking at the opportunity or the obstacle and figuring how to get there in a, in a creative fashion. It sounds like a lot of the ways that you're connecting with people and the key is connecting uh, in all of these stories is that you found a way to personalize it and to get someone to believe in you as a person before they believed in you as your business versus taking the approach that, hey, everybody's going to buy my product or buy my business because, hey, it's a business and I'm doing really well, so people are going to buy it. But because it's early on, you yes, maybe in time branding and all that stuff will help work in that give you that value. But when you're really early stage, you really have to get people to believe in and buy into you, which is you as a person. And then the rest of those things they're going to support as they get to learn the way you work ethically, the way you hustle and all of these other things. Those are the pieces that are going to drive you to those home office meetings and being able to open up Pandora's box and get that valuable uh, insight or that valuable help that you were looking for. Does that kind of sound more accurate? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that really is more of the approach in terms of how, how we've, uh, how I've looked at it. And that's the part of the journey for me that I relish and enjoy being part of the most, Um, you know, and although we did take the company up to the point where it was 114 people, I was honestly never really at my happiest in those times. I was happiest when we had nothing. Right. Which is, again, why I got attracted to the Schulich opportunity, because there was a whole blank slate in terms of what to create. And the budget that I had to start out with was a dollar. So, you know, but that was fun. Like then then my mind starts going to like, oh, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we what if we actually turned it into something and we and we and we only had a buck for the first couple of years to to create it? Then what would we then what would we do? So, yeah, I, I enjoy I enjoy that that side of things, connecting with people. Um, finding contacts, breaking through um, key moments, even in negotiations. Um, so, you know, I can give you like uh, another example where I was sitting down. Remember back when Krispy Kreme, the donut company, came to Toronto, Canada for the first time? And there were only very few locations. And people would line up around the block and they wanted to get in. I was trying to get more brands for the platform to work with. And it was earlier before we had our big, big accounts. So Krispy Kreme, I was all over that. I had like six or seven meetings with them, had negotiated the contract, everything all done, came to the last meeting. And the vice president, who was a young guy, it was his first executive gig, walked into the meeting. It was in the Krispy Kreme donut, their first location. And he walked and sat down the table and he looked like he just like, you know, as they say, like seen a ghost or he was just like really shook. And he said, I just got off the phone with the headquarters and um, in the States. And they've told me I can't proceed with the contract because I'm not allowed to spend money on anything that is marketing. We only do word of mouth. And that's how the whole history of the business was built. So I can't do this. And even though it's like a tech platform, I'm not allowed to engage in that, that kind of activity in terms of spending money. It's like a corporate principle in terms of what we do and don't spend money on. And in that moment, you know, I was like, oh, I spent all this time. And then, but it only took me like two seconds. And I, I ask the students in my classes, what sentence came out of my mouth next? And I, I give them a chance to guess. And all kinds of guesses come out. Only one student ever guessed the sentence that came out of my mouth, like exactly perfectly, like to the, to the letter. 
And what came out of my mouth next was, I'll do it for donuts. And then he was just, the guy was shocked and he was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you'll do it for donuts? I said, well, if you only do word of mouth and everything you do is giving away donuts, then I'll do the contract for donuts. You know, it was twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 deal. I was going to do it for like twenty, thirty $30,000 worth of donuts. And um, so here's the way it'll work. Every time I go speak somewhere, um, if I've got an audience of two, 300 people, you will ship two to 300 boxes of those donuts. And nobody wants to line up right now as it's their hot commodity. So then what I would do is they, he would ship all the donuts to the speaking event. And I would have my team tape our business cards for all the business development people on top of the box. And then what, at the beginning in the first 10 minutes while I was speaking, they would hand them out through the aisles with the business card taped to the, the box. Man, I made so much money off of $20,000 worth of like donut deals, <laughs> like more than I ever would have made if I took the money, yep. right? Like hands down, hands down. So I just like that kind of like, you know, obstacle. Okay. Like how do we get around the obstacle and, and how do we find like, you know, like your point, like connecting with the person. Right. But also you could probably see from a lot of these, you know, stories, there's like, it's, it's like, as you said, it's like demonstrating the value, bringing something that the other person like makes them like, you know, sit up and really, and really pay attention in the, in the process. And, and I think that that's like, you know, um, when the companies that I've coached or, you know, invested in, I've tried to bring that same mentality and approach to it. And people will call me up for both, um, for, for, um, investment opportunities, um, and how I would approach things. There's a phrase now within the, the, the community, um, within at least the startup, the Shook startup community that people will, and the students will use, which is like, what would Chris Carter do? Right. And that's almost like, you know, I'd love to get that one day on like a t-shirt or I don't know. I can't wear that t-shirt myself around. I just, I, I don't want a t-shirt, but I think it's kind of fun. What would Chris Carter do? And, and sometimes people call me up for job opportunities as well, too. One person called me up and they were pitching like a top founder in the, in the community that everybody knows for a job. And there were five finalists and they'd got to the final five people. And it was a Friday night at five o'clock. The decision was being made at noon on, on Monday. And the guy called up and he was like, I got to get this job. And I asked myself, what would Chris Carter do? But I couldn't figure it out. So I thought I'd just phone you. What would Chris Carter do? <laughs> so it was a, a business development uh, and partnerships uh, job. And this, remember, this is like Friday at five o'clock. And I said, well, I can guarantee you the job 1000% by Sunday at midnight. Um, everyone else goes away. No one else gets a final consideration of the job, but you have to spend the weekend and do exactly what I tell you to do. And, and the guy was, okay, what is it? It was very simple. Business development partnerships job. Got the weekend. You just got to get him a client by Sunday at midnight. And it's like, well, but I'm not working for the company yet. I said, perfect. There is no box, <laughs> right? There is no box. Like, it doesn't matter you're working for the company and like free your mind of like, we don't need a con. We don't actually need a contract. We need an email from one person to agree to take a meeting. And then when we get that email, you're going to flip it to the founder of the company and write exactly what I say. Don't change it. Don't freestyle. Just write exactly this. Dear so-and-so, so excited to work for your firm. I could not wait until Tuesday to get started. Please see below. 
hired at Sunday, right? Sunday midnight, he had the job. Everyone else had got sent home, right? So it doesn't matter what it is in life, whether it's a job opportunity or an investor or a client opportunity or whatever it is, um, there are ways to show that you can think differently and stand out in the crowd. Well, you're, you're taking the, the opportunity and instead of reacting the way most people would when it becomes a negative or something that they can't figure out, um, well, how do I move forward with you telling me no? You converted that into a solution that drove and continued to keep that personal relationship moving forward. So with the Krispy Kreme donuts, you knew that there was a high value of interest for these donuts. People were lining up for days around the corner that if you converted that into a, a generator for you as a next step, you could still keep them as a client. You could still talk about Krispy Kreme as a client. You've got $30,000 worth of donuts, and now you had to use a way to deploy them. Uh, have you ever seen the uh, um, series called Billions? Nope. So Billions is a Netflix, or sorry, a Crave show, and it's about billionaires, and uh, they, it's stock trading and um, asset trading. But at the end of it all, uh, the U.S. attorney, the one that runs the whole show, he ends up getting fired. So he has to start his own job. And his wife, who is a um, mental coach, she's trying to coach him that he knows this stuff and that he's a hustler and he can figure this out. So he's at the point where he's got to make connections and someone needs to have in the show, they need to have a gun permit in New York. And they're like the rarest thing you can get. And she's like, you can do this. So he ends up going around building favors to get this for someone, to get this for someone, to get this for something, to get that done, to execute, to build his, his brand. And really what you're doing is you're taking that same mentality is that you're trying to find a way with what you've got right in front of you. You've got someone that's hot on the iron and they want to execute, they want to work with you. But the problem is, is that they're in a box and you have to either fit in that box or go outside the box and come up with a fantastic solution that keeps them as a customer and keeps that warm lead now into a closed deal. And uh, that's how you approach everything, which I think hopefully in today, the audience will just get a huge amount of value from how you look at every situation versus looking at a no as a no. You're looking at that no as, wait a second, you were a little too quick on the, wait, I can't do this. But since we've been dancing for the last hour or the last 10 years or whatever it might be, I've got a better solution for you. And this is how we can work that forward. And, and I think it, if there's like, if there's a, like a, almost like a metaphor or a visualization that they can use for a problem, I would say it's actually go back to your, 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 your childhood and playing with Lego, right? It's, it's that any problem or any situation, if you just continue to stare at it as the, as the thing that it is individually, then it, it's, it's very hard to work with. But if you actually just like, you know, take the pieces all apart and look at them, I have like, I have $20,000. I have $20,000 for the donuts. I have someone who wants to get this done. I have people who are high-end executives who don't like sitting in line. Um, I have places I go, I meet with all those people. I like to have dramatic introductions and people remember me so that I can win business. Okay, there's the answer, right? Like it's all like, but you ha you have to like pull all the pieces apart in your mind and just kind of see them in front of you and then reconstruct them and put them back together and reoffer them to the world. And go quickly at it. Like you're doing this in real time. They don't have time for you to pull out a sheet of paper and start drawing and architecting this. Wait, wait, I know you got to go, but I got an idea here. Yeah. But you're, you've got to really uh, hone in on that skill, which is I can't lose the opportunity I have right now. And I got to figure out a way to make it work. 
And with one thing, you can find something else that's going to bring value. Um, and I have a million stories in my head running like crazy that I want to share. But uh, I think what what uh, I think the the end result here is that when a startup is working with either finding a mentor or finding sales uh, or get generating their first investor lead, they need to put time into understanding all the aspects of that relationship that they're building and utilize it as best as they can without it being forced, without it being um, demanded, but bringing value back to both parties so that they can feel that they got a win out of it and that there's a success that can come out or, you know, maybe not today, but in six months or whatever that might be, but find ways to create solutions. You don't always have to take cash. You got to find ways to build a better value for you and for that person that you're engaging in. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, um, when, when, uh, when you're looking at, uh, at all these things, um, I think I always say to the students that there is like, there's something, if they want to understand the startup community and they want to understand entrepreneurs and they want to understand, you know, leaders, um, the thing that separates all those people and that they look for when they're engaging with other people is proactivity, right? So it's like taking the game back to people. It's not sitting back in any of those scenarios. It's not like sitting back and hoping that something will shift in the, in the situation or sitting back and hoping that suddenly like you'll just happen to rise to the top of the five people. It's actually like being proactive and, and taking it forward and seeing what can be done to shift things, shift things up. We would do it in the middle of business development. So like one, 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 um, uh, strategy. And, uh, uh, again, another phrase that, that I, 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 I think I personally coined, but may be out there floating in the universe from other people like me is the concept of a proactive reference check. Okay. So most people view a reference check as something that you add at the list of like, uh, at the end of your business proposal or you wait. So like what, you know, level one is, they'll probably ask for references and I've got a list of them when they ask. Right. And level two is um, I've got a list of uh, references and I've really well, you know, groomed and prepared those people for when the time comes. Level three might be, I'm going to include the references right in my proposal as testimonials and actually have the, the, the client heard. So what would be level four of the reference check? Level four, the reference check is the proactive reference check. And get ready for this one because you're going to love this one. I would have my clients phone the leads when we were in the middle of an RFP or a pitch. And I would have four or five clients phone the person that we were pitching on their own and either get them, catch them live. And they, they, would, they, they loved this. So they would call four, five, six times if they had to to catch the person live, or they would leave elaborate voicemails. Okay. And I would, I would um, have all manners of executives calling on our behalf. And eventually the person who's like on the other end is like, what kind of like a client cult is this guy running that like people who are like presidents and entrepreneurs and like national politicians and like celebrities are picking up the phone on their own time and calling and leaving impassioned, like, you know, stories as to why they need to hire us. Right. And it would shock people like every, just shocked the system every time that that was happening. Right. I mean, I remember one time after we did it, 
someone uh, said to us and one of the, one of our more famous pitches, someone said to us like, you know, how did you get a guy with a, like a, a multi hundred million dollar company to make that phone call for you? And I said, uh, I said, my friend, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, when's it your turn? Right. And then he just laughed. You burst out laughing and said, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I want in. Right. You know, because that was like the client. Now, why did the client, why did the clients do that? Well, we took exceptional care of them and they loved the product, but like they also, we understood that as a startup, the early stage clients also have a vested interest in making sure that more clients continue to show up because they want you to they want you to grow they want you to be stable they want their bet they made to be the right bet on a young company right so so yeah it was these are these are just some of the different like you know ways or things that we can deal with and like that's the big reason Jeffrey why I really enjoy working at at Schulich and York University and working with all the students because um, you know more than having like you know solving the problems through my own business or solving the problems through like a portfolio of companies that I'm like invested in, the students have these questions like, you know, a hundred times a day. So it's like this, you know, incredible, just lab of problems and scenarios and, and, and situations. And as I'm teaching people how to think like this for their businesses, but also for their careers and in life, it's just incredible to see the, the impact that makes in boosting them on their trajectory. And, uh, and they, they really, you know, I can watch that. I can watch as they, as they go off on their, on their mission. And, you know, I, I view it as like at the end of like a 10 year, a 10 year run doing this, then there'll be like, you know, a thousand people out there, you know, or more, you know, maybe a thousand, maybe 5,000, who knows how many people through all these conversations and sessions that'll have done that will really get this core thing. And more than me saying, you know, tweak an item on your, you know, projection or, you know, um, uh, hey, here's a twist in terms of how you can view the product, which I enjoy doing. I know giving them this, this, this kind of talent and insight and way of viewing things is going to serve them well, no matter what they do in life and, and, and help them over and over again to keep, keep finding ways past obstacles. I love it. Uh, obviously, uh, from the beginning to the end, super insightful. Um, we're going to shift over and we're going to have a phase two because we are going to keep this conversation going because there's so many more things that I do want to dive into. Uh, but we're going to we're going to shift over to the rapid fire questions uh, yeah. just so that we can move through uh, a little bit quicker for you. Uh, but I promise you, we will have a phase two and maybe a phase three conversation if you're up for it. But uh, I do appreciate it, Chris. That was awesome. Sure. Uh, all right. So for the the uh, rapid fire questions. We'll start with, um, uh, how did you get started in investing in startups? What was the impetus that drove you into this? The first, first company that I invested in after selling uh, our core business was a former employee um, who came and asked me to invest in their company and their approach to how they resigned of all things and the, um, the sincerity and the uh, and and the um, commitment that they showed to continuing to support the company past their resignation um, made me believe in this person a thousand thousand percent. And so they were the first person who ever showed up and asked me to invest. Awesome. And your favorite part of investing is um, 
my favorite part of investing is is getting the opportunity to be um, uh, to be working and, and and applying the things we've talked about today and teaching those things, and then get to see it um, translated into success. And hey, it doesn't always translate into success. Sometimes it's not you know not taken to heart, or there's other factors. But when it has, and I and I get to see kind of some of my philosophies um, carried out. And I have a stake in the game, and uh, something that comes out of that on the other side. It just adds an element of, uh, of uh, you know, just uh, energy to be participating in that way. Uh, okay, how many uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Myself, I, I'm I'm very um, uh, very selective. Um, usually, only one per year that I do. Um, sometimes two, one or two. And uh, as of late, I've, I've uh, spent more time investing in uh, Schulich uh, alumni or student entrepreneurs. Awesome. Nope. Love it. Uh, any verticals you like to focus on? I, my, the ones that I'm like, uh, enjoy the most are, are business to business, uh, software, uh, you know, as a service solutions. Um, I'm particularly, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, adept in anything that's in the marketing automation type space. Um, okay. just because that's where I've like spent, uh, spent a lot of my life, but I have, um, I've participated in, in all sorts of different, different things over time. Okay. Do you have any, uh, due diligence requirements that you look for to make before you make a commitment? My, my, um, my approach is, and I don't think this is similar or, or, or super unique, but, but I really like to spend time with the companies that I'm invested in. So the best ones have been ones that have come after I've been serving as an advisor, a coach, um, not in exchange for anything, but just um, to build the relationship, um, see how the person like does or doesn't take advice. Um, do they make a promise and, and keep the promise? And um, those have been the ones that have been the not only the most you know successful, but also I enjoy working on the most because I know that even if they get a little rough or a little challenging, I'm going to still continue to enjoy putting my heart and my energy behind the, behind the person. I think my, 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 besides that, the, the staff person that I mentioned who has done very well and I love working with, if there were early stage, like, you know, um, you know, uh, mulligans that I would like over, it would be for, for moving too fast as opposed to really getting to know somebody by watching them and participating alongside them in the business and spending enough time. Okay. No, that's good. Kind of wraps up the, the next one as well. Next question too. So uh, do you lead rounds? No, um, I've, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's rare that I would lead around. It's, it's, uh, it's more uh, natural for me that I would say, here's my check that is waiting for you. You can tell people that it's there and you can count on it, but you need to go find someone who's at this next level. So I've often been the first, let's call it the first contingent money that someone can go around and say, well, I have him and here's, I'll even sign a letter that says, here's the commitment that once you raise, uh, you know, have commitments at a certain level that'll go in alongside people. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I tend not to, to raise because, uh, sorry, tend not to lead because between everything I have going on in school and my four children, I don't have time to like put that level of diligence into leading the way for a group of people. I, I love that. And I'm only going to diverse on that one because I remember sitting with you at a restaurant 
and you had pitched to me and said, if there was one thing I could do that would have changed the way my business ran is that if I had a pool of money sitting on the side and the whole company knew that the money was there to protect us and you could earn all of that money at the end of the year, if you grew the business to this size, would you be more successful? And could you accomplish beating the odds, going outside the box so that you could get that pile of money? And I remember you saying that and I have battled that in my head all the time because I totally believe that the biggest factor of anything that prevents a startup from crushing it is, is cash flow and cash. And if they just had something on the sideline of those dollars sitting there, knowing that they had them, how much risk would they put in so that they could crush it? So at the end of the year, they could get those dollars back. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think that that's powerful. And you do it by giving them that early stage um, investment by saying, I'm your first money in, now go raise your money. And I think that that would give so much energy and mental change to that startup. So I love it. Sorry, I had to divert because that story's been in my head a long time. Um, uh, okay, so uh, do you reinvest and do you take board seats? I do reinvest and um, I uh, I have taken board seats, but it's not a man- it's not like a mandatory thing for me. I, I I look sincerely at the collection of people that are around the table and um, everyone's relative levels of commitment. Um, often, though, the founder has sought me out to be on the board because they know my reputation is I am, and I, and I hope we all are, um, but I but I have a demonstrated commitment of being founder first. So, you know, we, we one deal that I invested in and uh, alongside uh, uh, a friend of mine out there in the world, uh, uh, Derek Zito, who you would know as well, of course, and um, Derek has a lot of the same philosophies as, as, as myself. And we were in a deal and the founder came forward and one of the two founders came forward and, and just sincerely communicated like a, a life moment with his family and that he needed to go back to not being an entrepreneur because what that would mean in terms of the stability of his family and those things. And, and when Derek and I looked at each other and we knew it was cool sell it for now, not like this is like a, a, a terrible thing, but like sell it for 12 when we know you could probably like hang on and murder yourself for the next four years and sell it for 50 and you might wind up with no family at the end of it. And we don't want that. So good. Sell it for 12. So people know that that's like my approach. And when I'm at the table with the other board members or with um, once venture capital gets involved, that will always like my first question, no matter what is the incentive for me financially, is always to the founder is, tell me what you want, tell me what you're feeling, tell me what this means to you. And then after I listen to them and give them all my advice on that, then they can turn around and what would, you know, what I think, or if it's compelling to, to me. I learned that lesson because I had a really great, one of my very first investors with Thin Data, the first time I had an offer to sell the company and I was just thought it was very important. Like it was very earnest and, and, and young. And I was like, I have to go tell him because we have this opportunity to sell the company because someone, you know, uh, put this forward and had a lunch with me. And, and so I went to, ha- to talk with them and he looked at me and he said, okay, thanks for letting me know. Um, uh, better plan than we do. 
And I said, well, no, we have a far better plan. And here's why. And he said, okay, would you have more fun working for them than working for yourself? And I said, no, I love working for myself. And he said, okay, thanks for letting me know. Okay, so let's talk more about the business. He never even asked what the amount was. He literally never asked. And he just went back to talking about the company. And so I had that very like early example in my life and he and the people around him continued to back me up in those moments like that. And so I've tried to bring that when I am in a board seat, try to bring that philosophy to the table is like, you know, I will never pursue the return of my X, you know, thousands of dollars over whether the founder is going to be happy or not. So that's, I think, more why I wind up hanging around the board and the founder wanting me, wanting me there because I will always like point out to them that even though what you're about to do might ultimately make me more money, I'm not sure if you're going to be happy with taking that deal because here's what you're, you know, unlocking into your life in that moment. So let's just think about that, you know, and there's just, and there's lots of people who can just push them or better faster, but I always just try and like bring the, the balance of what their life's going to look like or how they're going to like, you know, how they're going to enjoy it based on what happens. I love, love it. You're humanizing it and you're bringing a strong value of ethics into the whole principle of not only just investing, but working with the startups and helping them. So awesome. Awesome. Uh, the, the next question I have before we have three quick personal questions is, uh, and you kind of answered it now. So I, I was fighting with myself, should I ask it, but you may have a better story. And since I love getting stories out of you, uh, maybe this will be uh, one you'll share, but it's, um, I always like for that heartfelt story of a startup that you work with, um, where she or he basically went from catastrophe or went from amazing to catastrophe or just something along the lines of just were able to overcome what it took to be an entrepreneur, just to share kind of that vigor that it takes to be, uh, to go through this because then maybe, you know, people think that it's an easy go, but there's, uh, I always look for that one tough story that someone really went through to really solve a problem and it would blew your lid off that you couldn't believe what they had to do. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I know there's, there's, there's a couple that are like that in, in, in particular. And, um, you know, I've been, I'm going to say that I'm, I've been really impressed with how a number of the companies I've invested in have handled the whole pandemic. Right. And, um, you know, back, back when I faced a couple of like, you know, ec whether they were economic crises or like, you know, political crises that kind of shook the world up and shook the markets up. And I was lucky enough to have a, 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 men a mentor or two who kind of guided me through that. And I've been really impressed just with how in general, there's a resiliency within the philosophies of the startup space and that the founders feel right now that have allowed them to collectively share information, move together and get past things. But I have a number of companies, you know, without, without naming them in particular that have had their whole business model shook um, as a result of um, what happened uh, with the pandemic and physical environment changing or rideshare changing or like all these types of things and what people will touch or not touch. And like, there's a whole bunch of, of just, you know, general shifts out there that I, I don't think may or may not ever come back to normal. 
And, you know, I remember one conversation during the pandemic where um, the, the founder, one of the founders, Shulik founder called me up and said, Hey, Chris, want to have a conversation with you because, you know, a lot of, a lot of our mentors or, or, or advisors are telling us that um, what we should do is we should fire three people. I'm picking a number out of the air, but fire three people so that we can keep the rest of the staff at a hundred percent salary. And, but in our gut, we feel like that's not what we've built and that's not the culture we built. And we, what we feel like we want to do is go to the company, be very transparent, tell them that we as founders are cutting our salaries by half and that we'd like the rest of the team to cut by like 25%. But if they do that, then here's the exact date by which we can manage through with no other cuts. But we don't know how to have that conversation and our some of our investors are telling telling us, no, you can't trust people with that conversation. They're going to all burn you kind of thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, so let's role play that conversation. And this is what I would say. This is what I would do and how I would like, you know, introduce it. And, um, and they did that. And not only did the team carry through and everything hold together and the culture stay, they've, they're, they're, they're back to their next kind of like evolution and, and, and doing well again. So I think I'm proud of people who didn't like, you know, a number of people that I've worked with who didn't take some of the immediate pandemic advice, which was like coming out where people were just like screaming out of the gate, cut everybody, slash everything, burn everything backwards. Um, and that some people chose to go a different path. Now, I know some people had to do that and I'm not criticizing people who were, who were like legitimately forced in that situation, but I'm, I'm always proud of people who find a different way around that. When we faced that, I had many conversations with, you know, my spouse at the time. And I would say like, you know, we have a choice. We're going to like, you know, go another four months without getting paid. And this is what life's going to look like, or we got to fire Fred. Sorry, Fred, if you're out there listening right now, but the good news is Fred never got fired. <laughs> so, um, and we'd always decide like as a family and as founders, and we'd decide, no, we're not firing Fred. We'll go another four months without getting paid. So I see that when I see people in, in the pandemic who are operating like that, that made me really happy. And I'm, I'm really glad to see th some of those companies really succeeding as well too. Awesome story. Yeah. And I agree. You have to, again, find a better solution. You don't have to take the first thing that's in front of you because everybody says it's the right way to jump off the cliff. Uh, find another way and, and make it work for you and your, your employees and your team, because they're the ones that make you uh, the success of the business that you are. So you got to find ways to adapt and adjust properly. But I love that. Um, okay. Three personal questions and then we can scoot uh, because I know you've got a household of uh, family members that need some French. So, uh, um, all right. So first, first question, favorite sports team. Toronto Maple Leafs. I actually camped out, um, for two days as a teenager in front of Maple Leaf Gardens to be the first, um, the first person in Toronto with my friends, whoever beat the scalpers in line to the tickets at Maple Leaf Gardens back before Ticketmaster was deployed. So I am like hardcore. I used to travel on the bus to Newmarket to see the Newmarket Saints, watch Ty Domi play before he was a Leaf up there. Yeah, I'm a Leaf fan. Amazing. I saw them play when I was a kid too. And uh, the name that comes to mind when I was a kid, I don't know if you remember, his name was Val James. He was oh, yeah. uh, one of the first black hockey players, tough guy, 
He's actually got a book that he came out with and his experience in, uh, in the, yeah, I, bought, I bought it for my son at Christmas. He's reading it now. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was a huge fan of him when I was a kid. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Uh, your favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie or would play you? I well, guess I, okay. So my, my favorite movie is the unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. And I would definitely have to play, uh, Clint Eastwood's character. And the, and the reason why I love that movie so much is because it's got this, uh, this concept of the core in it that you need to look at, again, all the possibilities of who you are, what you're capable of, and, um, and channeling all of that to protect the people around you and, you know, whatever, you know, and what, and what, and what you love. So I, I, I've always uh, loved that moment where he realizes that, you know, for just a little while, he's got to go back to being a bad man in order to straighten out some ridiculous things that have been done in that town. And um, yeah, I always love that. And I'll always love, I always will always gravitate towards characters that are a merged combination. Like my favorite, you know, my favorite sci-fi character is going to be Darth Vader. My favorite comic book character is Magneto. It's like, I want someone who's playing the edges on both sides of the situation, light and dark at the same time. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to watch that movie. Um, and I came up with these questions because I never, at the beginning, I wasn't personalizing it enough and getting to really understand the human side. And I was listening to one of the startups you work with and in their podcast, they would ask, um, what, what, what name, name of the movie that depicts your life? So I kind of thought, well, I want to know more about the character because the character to me defines who you really think you are and who you actually are. And uh, then I can watch the movie and this is where I get a lot more understanding of the person. So now I don't, be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me after you watch the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but no, the, the, I love Unforgiven. It was a great movie, but I haven't seen it in so long. So this is going to be a great way to kind of uh, catch that back up. But I could totally see that with uh, uh, with the Clint Eastwood character. So I guess you'll be walking around with a six stringer and um, uh, bumping off lines with your little tiny uh, cigars, I guess. But um, yeah, that final, that final showdown. And maybe it's like the unbeatable odds that I like. Maybe it's the fact that he walks in alone into that saloon with like, you know, 30 laws and he walks out. Yep. I love it. Well, Chris, I thank you very much for your time today. I know we went a little bit over. Uh, my apologies. If you need any help with the French, I, I can throw some time in for free. I do speak French uh, to help out the family. I might call uh, you later. <laughs> I appreciate um, you jumping into this. And I really hope we can do a, a number two because I think there's still so many more stories and things that we can pull out uh, and share with the audience. Um, and the way we like to end the show is I like to leave you with the last word. Anything that you want to share to investors or to startup entrepreneurs um, I leave it to you to, to share that. But again, thank you very much for all your time today. Yeah, I'll just say in, in, in parting, um, just the Lego blocks, there is no box. And if you want to uh, trigger your thinking and you've watched this episode, when you ne face your next challenging moment, ask yourself, what would Chris Carter do? I thanks, Jeffrey. It. All right, man. Have a fantastic day. And thanks again for all your time. Well, that was awesome. And I'm a big fan of Chris Carter. He's done a lot of great things in the environment. But of course, uh, when you look at just the stories and things that he's done with his own startups, it, uh, for me, it, it really uh, resonates a lot. And I love his tactics. And man, the juices were flowing with stories. 
And uh, I'm glad that he was able to share a lot of those. Um, and there's a lot of things that he talked about too, um, pitching the, the wrestling and the TV show for Fox, uh, just on how he built value and made sure that, you know, he thought outside the box and instead of always being baked inside. So uh, big kudos to, uh, um, to Chris and the success and, and love what they're doing at Shulik. And uh, thank you again for joining us and have a great day.